So y'all ready for week two? Yeah, all right, me too. This week we're going to look at the theme of love, if I don't throw all these papers everywhere. And so b- before we begin reading in, verse 20, or in, in Genesis chapter 29, did I already tell y'all to turn there? Okay, good. I thought I did, but sometimes, you know. I want to put out this sort of disclaimer, all right? I mentioned heroes in the faith. Um, and, and, and when we read a story in the Bible, like, like here, here's what the disclaimer is. There are no truly, quote, unquote, innocent parties, right? In the story that I'm about to read, um, uh, I mean, again, if you're here and you're new to the Bible, um, you need to know that the story the Bible tells is the story of the human condition just as it is, right? It, it just as it is, not as it should be, but just as it is, meaning that it's gritty and that it's raw and it's, it's rated R and sometimes NC-17 and sometimes even worse, right? It's full of deception, it's full of murder, it's full of sexual misconduct, it's full of oppression, it's full of evil. Um, and if you're thinking about all those things, you're going, well, that sounds like the world we live in today. It's, yes, yes. Here's the thing. If I'm authoring the Bible, if I'm authoring the Bible and attempting to win people over to a particular set of beliefs, like, I'm going to embellish it and I'm going to change it up to make things a little more palatable, Right? But here's the thing, God doesn't do that, and here's why. Because the good news of this story is that even, even though human beings continue um, to, I would say, devolve and get it wrong and sin and cause strife and abuse others and kill and murder and hurt people, it shows, um, how, I mean, it shows how our rebellion grieves the heart of God deeply and how he acts to promise to bring full restoration to all of this for his own glory. And so, let's bring this down to those of us who are in the room this morning. Most of us believe um, that our lives and our families have to be perfect in order for God to see us. You may not, you may not admit that, but there, deep down somewhere there's a struggle saying, yeah, I've got to be perfect in order for God to see me. I've got to get it right for God to see me. Most of us believe um, that, 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 truth and, uh, that, that to be true, and, and this story that we're going to read today shows us that that's absolutely not the case. We, would, we could absolutely look, read the story that we're going to read, and you probably have heard some sermons preached from this, uh, from these texts, and, and we could absolutely um, pull out a couple decent moral observations from the lives of the people in the story that we're going to read today. But here's the thing, and that's great. That's, here's the thing. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is to show us a picture of what sin and what dysfunction looks like in one particular family, and spoiler alert, how God, in his love, reaches down into that mess and brings healing and he brings goodness to them and then through them. Okay, so in the family we're going to read about today, there's this one particular character who, again, is not perfect, um, but who everyone discounts and seemingly discards, and she is the most, I mean in the most soul-crushing and simplest of terms, is just overlooked and mistreated by everyone. So we'll begin by what we typically do, is I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you to be vulnerable, vulnerable here. The question is this. What are some reasons that you may feel or do feel overlooked? Or ways that you have been overlooked. Not 
not being included. Yeah. What else? Say that again. Appearance, yeah. Somebody looks at you and makes a snap judgment about who you are and your character, what you're all about. Age, yeah. Singleness. Singleness. Nobody says anything, yeah. Do something somebody gets credit for. A couple others? Yeah, prayers unanswered. Yeah. 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 Yeah, break in, Lord. Break in, yeah. So I'm going to ask you a follow-up question. Maybe this is probably more vulnerable. How do those things make you feel? Like what are some, what are some feelings that you have when those types of things happen to you? Angry? Thanks for sharing that. Not good enough? Thanks for sharing that. Alone? Thanks for sharing that. Sad? Thank you, Asher, for sharing that. Small? Yeah. Forgotten? Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you lose hope. Thanks for sharing that. Apathy, yeah. Yeah, you just, whatever. Numb, yeah. So, one of, the, one of the difficulties, thanks for participating in that. That was really good. One of the difficulties in teaching this passage is that, or this story of this family, is that it expands over several chapters in the Bible. And so we obviously don't have time to, to read through everything. But what I do want to do is highlight much of it. And so let's begin in chapter 29 of Genesis in verse 9. The word of the Lord says this. While he was still speaking to them, uh, with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. As soon as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter, Rachel, with his sheep, he went up and rolled the stone from the opening and watered his uncle's sheep, his uncle Laban's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept loudly. He told Rachel that he was his father's, her father's relative, Rebekah's son. She ran and told her father. When Laban heard the news about his sister's son, Jacob, he ran to meet him hugged him, and kissed him. Then he took him into his house, and Jacob told him all that had happened. Laban said to him, Yes, you are my, my own flesh and blood. After Jacob stayed with him a month, Laban said to him, Just because you're my relative, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. Now Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah. The younger was named Rachel. Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he answered Laban, I'll work for you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban replied, Better I give her to you than some other man. Stay with me. So Jacob worked for seven years for Rachel, and they seemed like only a few days to him because his love for her. Now, a lot going on there. In the passage, we see that Laban is a shepherd, Jacob is a shepherd, 
Rachel is a shepherdess. Uh, it seems that Laban is a pretty shrewd businessman. I mean, if you read the rest of the story, you'll see um, sort of his dealings. He's no doubt, he no doubt hears um, how, uh, how, how handy Jacob is in the fields with his sheep, and he sees dollar signs, okay? His beautiful, uh, the text says, shapely daughter, Rachel, is a shepherdess. I'm not 100% sure how common it would have been for a daughter uh, at that time to be tending sheep. I don't recall any other women that, I, that again, that I can think of that were um, shepherdess, shepherdesses in the scripture. Uh, but that's probably significant in all this. Uh, what we know and what we find out more uh, regarding Laban is that he, uh, this brother, is all about the Benjamins, right? It's likely that even the love that he has for Rachel is because she is a trophy in a sense. She's beautiful and um, she knows how to tend sheep, right? Laban sees that Jacob desires the hand of his trophy, Rachel, and his wheels begin to turn. They begin to spin. He says, I'll pay you something, Jacob. What do you want? Jacob says, I'll work for you seven years. This is after a month of working for him. Jacob says, I'll work for you seven years if you allow me to marry Rachel. And if you notice Laban's response here, um, if you had never thought about this, you probably thought, yeah, he agreed to it. But his, he doesn't say yes, does he? he? He says this, well, better you have her than some other stranger. That's a man with a high view of women, right? I mean, seriously. Again, especially his daughter. Like, again, it's, this, is, this is all, like, some of this is like, we're gonna, it's cringeworthy. All right, and it is just cringeworthy. Um, I mentioned before dysfunction and the human condition. Well, you know, here we have it. So, in all of this, we're introduced to another member of the family, and the other member of the family is basically the way that the writer introduces this. Is he says he talks all about Rachel and how she was a shepherdess and how Jacob loved Rachel, and then and then there's this line that says, "Now Laban had two daughters, the older Leah." and the younger Rachel. Now, I'm, I'm going to read the second half of the verse that we just read uh, a few minutes ago to set some context for this. But what I want you to imagine is this blank space. This blank space, dot, 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 but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. I want you to stop and I want you to imagine if you were the person in the blank space being described in the first half of this sentence. The part that comes before the but. You'd be the one that was compared to the shapeliness and the beauty of Rachel. Now, whatever words fill in that blank space, whatever they happen to say about you, um, I think we can all get on the same page and agree that they're probably not flattering. The woman described in the verse I read was the older sister, Leah. And, and this is what the verse says about Leah. Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Now, there's, if you read commentators, if, I don't, I've never heard a sermon just about Leah specifically, which, again, I think it's pretty crazy since where we're going with this uh, in just a minute, and she's still overlooked. It's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of weird. But commentators have all kinds of different theories about what that, that, what that Hebrew phrase, tender eyes, actually, or, or soft eyes, some of your translations. Um, some say it means cross-eyed. Some say it means protruding eyes. Some say it is some sort of birth defect. Some say it was just that her eyes didn't sparkle as bright as Rachel's. And still say some that tender eyes is just an old Hebrew euphemism that we don't know anymore that just means plain ugly. The, the point is, we don't really know what it means. We don't actually know what it means, but we do know that the verse has given us a window into, into Leah's story, and that's what matters here. 
She has been internally and externally compared to the beauty of her baby sister pretty much her entire life. Whatever the standard of beauty happened to be in that time, Rachel, she passed with flying colors, and her sister most certainly did not. So at this point, like, like, like I want to highlight the painting um, that our friend Emily Sill painted. Uh, and it's the second one uh, to your left. You can't see it from there all the way, so I, I, would, I would suggest that you go and take a closer look at this one. Um, it is amazing. Here's what Emily says about uh, how this story motivated her to paint this picture. She said this, Leah was viewed as someone who no one could love or cherish. She's the person who we never notice. She's the forgettable one. She's the forgettable one that the world sees as ugly. In this picture, I wanted to show the pain of loneliness and envy a person may feel when you're unloved by others. Yet God always saw her and constantly sought after her heart to be content in him. I love that God always works. Emily says, I love that God always works in our pain and uses our brokenness to draw us near to him. Isn't that beautiful? Let's read a bit further. Verse 21. And Jacob said to Laban, Since my time is complete, give me my wife so I can sleep with her. So Laban invited all the men of the place and sponsored a feast. That evening, Laban took his daughter Leah, no, I didn't misread the name, and he gave her to Jacob, and he slept with her. And Laban gave his slave Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her slave. Verse 25, when morning came, there was Leah. So he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? Laban said, is it not the custom in this place to give the, young, to give the younger daughter in marriage? Is it, I'm sorry, let me read that again. Is it not the custom in this place to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn? Complete this week of wedding celebration, and, and we will also give you this younger one in return for working yet another seven years for me. And Jacob did just that. He finished the week of celebration, and Laban gave his daughter Rachel as his wife. And Laban gave his slave Billah to his daughter Rachel as her slave. Jacob slept with Rachel also, and indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. So there's lots of things in this story um, that, that they're just not said. Okay? And, and it really leaves us with a lot of questions. Uh, first of all, how in the world could Jacob be tricked into marrying the wrong woman, right? That's on everybody's mind, especially since he was clearly smitten with Rachel. Like, no doubt, he spent seven years thinking about what she looked like, um, rolling her, the picture of her over in his mind over and over and over and over. Some speculate in this that it was a wedding celebration. Jacob clearly had to be drunk here, which I think it's very likely, uh, again, considering how people celebrated uh, weddings in that time period. And also, if you look back at the patriarchs, they had a flair for, you know, liking the, the, the fruit of the vine a little much. And so, like, like in, this, in this too, like what we know, know is that the bride would have been veiled 
And I, I don't know that it was veil in the same way that you can kind of see through. Maybe it was. I don't know. But it may, may have more like a, a Middle Eastern burqa that we, that we know today. Lots of, lots of speculation here. Also, you know, they're, they're married. They go back to the tent to consummate the marriage. There's no electricity. You can't just flip on the lights if it's dark. And so, like, like when, and when morning comes, you've got the light of the day so we could actually see what was going on. There's also this, this idea that I, that I read where somebody, somebody thought that maybe Leah had something to do with the deception because she wanted a husband so bad. I don't know. I don't know. The thing that continues to get me is this. Why in the world would he do something like this? I, I, think, I think it sort of props up this idea that in the mind of Laban that he would never be able to find her a husband any other way. If, and here's the thing. If, if you are the woman whose father has to trick a man into thinking that you are his sister, her sister in order to marry you, I'd say that's going to leave a pretty deep wound. Right? I'd say for Leah, this is a pretty low place. And some of you, believe, again, maybe Leah was in on the deception, but, 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 but like, here's the thing, because she believed this to be true about herself, like, again, we don't know for sure, but I do know that the more that you are told how terrible or unlovable or ugly or unsatisfactory or how useless you are, the more you begin to believe it. That never excuses how you act toward another person, but it certainly creates an environment where uh, others can be wounded more greatly. And so, like, the saying is true, family. We've heard this probably since we were this tall. Hurt people hurt people, right? It's true. In this, like, imagine Jacob's surprise when he wakes up and he finds out that he's actually not married to Rachel. His shock. I mean, I don't think we have to imagine. Like, the text tells us, what have you done, Laban? I worked for Rachel's hand in marriage, not Leah. And imagine Leah hearing this, and this is another voice that's saying, I don't want you, I want her, I don't want you, I want her. Laban's response is about as simple as this, and this is like, I, like I want to punch him in the face. Um, Laban's response is this, uh, it's the law, bro, basically. And what, to be clear, what he's saying is he's not talking about polygamy. Polygamy is mentioned all throughout the Old Testament. Here's the thing. It's never condoned by God, and it always leads to a train wreck of dysfunction, just like we're about to see in this text. Just like you see in the show Sister Wives, which if you've never watched it, PSA, don't. It's a waste of time. (laughs) He's saying to Jacob, in order to get Rachel you got to take Leah. Why? Well, in Laban's mind, nobody else is going to take her. Otherwise, they probably already would have. So let's talk about weddings for a minute. Ladies, show of hands. How many of you, when you are a little girl, dreamed about your wedding day? How many dreamed about your wedding day? There's whole shows on that, too. I'd say they're worth watching. Um, this is beautiful. You dream about your wedding day, right? You dream about, like, what, what are some things that you imagined about your wedding day? What, what were they? Go for it. The dress. Yes, the dress. What else? Cake. Man, if somebody didn't say cake, I was about to say, you know, I was dreaming about wedding cake. I love wedding cake. What else? 
the venue. What else? The guy. Prince Charming, right? The guy. What else? <laughs> yes. Yes. Dress, flowers, ceremony, Prince Charming, the honeymoon. Somebody was thinking it, they didn't say it. So here's this, like, get this frame of mind. It, if, imagine if the day after your wedding, or maybe the same day, your husband discovered, yeah, I'm sorry, the day after your wedding, your husband discovered that he was tricked into marrying the wrong person and then was promised after a week he could really marry the one that he wanted to marry, would that not be crushing to you? I'll be honest with y'all, until... Uh, to, my, to my fault, until this week when I was really looking at this, th- at this passage, like I always had in my mind, and not, this, not that this, this makes it better, um, that, that actually that, that Jacob worked seven more years and then he was married to her. That's what I thought. That's not what the text says. It says we had a wedding today. Hey, guess what? After this week, I, he's, he's, he's betrothing his other daughter to him the day after their wedding, and they're getting married seven days later. Like, that is brokenness upon brokenness, right? Not, I mean, not only that, but to hear that your new husband actually loved another woman, your sister, who you have been compared to your entire life, he loved her enough. <laughs> Check this out. He loved her enough to work seven years be tricked, and then work seven more years just to make, make her his wife. So, 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 like, don't get it twisted, family. Jacob worked 14 years for Rachel. He worked 14 years for Rachel. In this, man, you just see how Leah is just collateral damage in all of this. Overlooked is an understatement. Some of you mentioned these things earlier. When you feel overlooked, like, you, you, you don't feel seen. You don't feel heard. You don't feel a sense of connectedness. And that, that's what Leah wants. That's what we all want, right? We all want to be seen and heard and connected with. And when we don't get it, our tendency is to go into work mode. What can I do to not be overlooked? What can I do to prove myself? What can I do to make someone else love me? What can I do to make someone else see me? What can I do to make someone hear me? What can I do um, so that someone will be connected to me in this way? That's our human tendency. It's exactly what we run toward. It's exactly what Leah does. And if you read with me, looking at verse 31, read this, read this with me. It says, when Leah saw that, I'm sorry, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was unable to conceive. Now, I'm going to come back to this, this, this verse in a minute. But I cannot help but pause here and say, in the midst of how unloved, or this word unloved, in some of your Bibles it's translated as hated. In the midst of how overlooked or hated that you may feel right now, in the midst of how overlooked and hated Leah felt, here's what's real. God saw her. God saw her. And here's the thing. You're sitting here thinking, yeah, 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 whatever. You don't recognize that God saw you. Guess what? And this, the point in this story, Leah didn't recognize God saw her either. But he did. 
You might not recognize it. He sees you. And here's what, here's what Leah begins to do. She recognized that the Lord is the one who opens her womb. Like, she sees that. She open, the, the Lord opens her womb. She's able to conceive children. But it seems her motive for having children is to be seen by her husband, Jacob. She wants to be seen so badly. Every child, she says, now my husband will notice me. Now my husband will love me. Look at verse 32. Leah conceived, gave birth to a son, and named him Reuben. For she said, the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. Verse 33, she conceived again, gave birth to a son and said, The Lord heard that I am unloved and he has given me this son also. And she named him Simeon. Verse 34, she conceived again, gave birth to a son and said, At last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne three sons for him. Therefore his name will be Levi. Now, there's probably not many Hebrew speakers in here. I'm not either. I've got a a really expensive tool that helps me to do this. (laughs) I want you to recognize the names of the kids and the longing for her heart because she's calling these kids the longing of her heart. Her firstborn son, Reuben, in Hebrew, literally means he sees. Her second son, Simeon, in Hebrew, really means he's heard. Her third son, Levi, in Hebrew, means has connected. The names of these boys highlight the longing for her heart to finally and fully be seen, to be heard, and to be connected to a man who will love her and who will care for her. This is a woman pouring out her soul in the naming of her kids. What's pretty clear from the story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel is that Jacob never seems to come around to loving Leah in the way that she would like for him to love her. Some things change in her, though. Look at the shift in verse 35. This is our fourth child. All the ones before it. Now my husband will love me. Now he'll hear me. Now he'll be connected to me. And she, in verse 35 says, And she conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. Then Leah stopped having children. Now Leah gets to this place where, where she has to deal with reality. We talk a lot about falling in love with reality all the time. And what we mean when we say that is this. In order to bring life and healing to a particular place, we have to be really honest about where we are. Leah has to be honest about her wounds. The author of Genesis 29 is telling us that Leah is honest when when she says with each child, now my husband will love me. I'm going to do this. Now my husband will will love me. And here's the fourth child. She says, nope. As much as this hurts, it's obvious that I cannot do enough to make Jacob love me. I could be a baby factory. I I could probably be everything he ever wanted, but I'm never going to be Rachel. With this child, this time, whose name is Praise, I will praise the Lord. She names the son Judah. From this point on, what we see in the life of Leah, again, I keep saying still not perfect. I want you all to hear me say that that, that none of these characters are are sinless perfection. Uh, Homer Simpson, you see that that episode of, uh, of 
probably not. The Simpsons, where he's got the Bible, and he's like flipping. This is the best commentary on the scripture um, in, in all network TV, especially something like The Simpsons. He pulls out the Bible, and he's flipping through, and he goes, all these people are a mess except for this one guy. That's Homer Simpson's commentary on the Bible, and he's more right than probably most evangelical churches. Sorry, I had to get that dig in there. She's 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 over trying to perform. But but here's the thing. I don't get a sense that she ceases longing to be loved by Jacob. It doesn't say that. But there's this kind of contentment because I believe that she recognizes that God sees her, that God hears her, that God attaches himself to her and her being looked over. Now, if you keep reading chapter 30, what you see is that God does eventually bless. So Rachel is barren in this, all right? God eventually, so think about this. On the flip side, we're not going to talk about Rachel very much, um, but on the flip side of this, um, so, so they're married, and, and I mean, four kids. So think about the first four years of their marriage. If they started having kids immediately, I mean, that's at least four years' time, right? Basically, right? So, so Rachel then has to watch her sister do something that she can't. And so you get this, this picture where, where Rachel begins to envy her sister because she can't provide, ja- because she herself can't provide Jacob with something that Leah can. Rachel, though, in the text, <clears throat> it tells us that she's a skilled worker. She's a beauty queen. She has the affection of Jacob, who worked 14 years for her, um, who was, and, and who was tricked into marrying her sister. And then she looks at Leah, and she gets, she, she gets this feeling of emptiness inside, and she shows us a picture of someone in, in her story. She shows a picture of someone who doesn't seem to find healing in this wounded place. Remember, she's been objectified too. She's the trophy. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she envied her sister. Give me sons or I will die, she said to Jacob. Jacob became angry with Rachel and said, Am I in God's place who has withheld offspring from you? Then she said, Here is my maid, Billah. Go sleep with her, and she will bear children for me, so that through her, I, can, I too can build a family. This word, like in her pain, she says this, Give me sons, or I will die. In her pain, Rachel is trying to place onto Jacob a load that he has zero ability to carry. Zero. Jacob knows that. Heck, Rachel knows that. We all know that. When, 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 we, are, um, when we are looking at our own woundedness um, and nothing else, we tend to place unrealistic expectations on, on those people who are closest to us, right? That's true, 100% of the time. They just seem, uh, like, like, like they just seem to get the brunt of it, and Jacob here is no exception. And so rather than work through this, what we see, Rachel Um, has this suggestion and she says here here's my servant have a child with her so I can have what I want and if you look at the names of Rachel's sons her first son is named Dan which in Hebrew means vindicated her second son is Naphtali which in Hebrew means wrestling in this text she says I have wrestled with my sister and I've won who's she in a fight with 
And besides that, like, look at the sheer facts. We got four kids to two kids. She hadn't won anything. See how the posture is so different. But sadly, we don't, we don't see the same change in Rachel that we see in Leah. Leah does the same things that, that, that she, she gives her servant to Jacob as well, and they have more sons. And check out their name. It's sort of this, it's sort of this continuation of praise that Leah is growing more and more confident that God sees her. And, and the, the first son um, with, with Leah's servant is Gad, who's in Hebrew, Hebrew means, what good fortune? Asher, which, thought I was calling your name. Asher, which, what does Asher mean? What does Asher mean, Asher? You know? What does it mean? Happy? It means happy. She says this about herself. She says, I'm going to name this son Asher because women see that I am happy, so I'll call him happy. So I'm naming my son that. And, and then there's this weird story about mandrakes in the text, which, again, all y'all thought about Harry Potter and those scream sounds, right? Uh, <clears throat> Reuben, <laughs> mandrakes. Reuben goes out, and uh, the oldest son, Reuben, he goes out and collects some mandrakes, which, which for mandrakes, like I didn't know this, I just thought they were that weird plant. It looked like a turnip with feet. Um, and, but there was this, there was this like, like mysticism around mandrakes, that they were an aphrodisiac and they helped barren women to conceive a child. And so Reuben finds some. Reuben, Leah's oldest son, finds some. Anyway, Rachel sees that Reuben has these mandrakes, and she's like, hey, I want those mandrakes. And Leah hears about it, and she gets a little snippy, right? She's a little protective mom, and she says, hey, hang on a second. Isn't it enough that you took my husband? You also want to take my son's mandrakes? And Rachel responds, Rachel responds, she is her father's daughter after all. Like, she responds, I'll tell you what. See this, I'm going to give you what you want most if I can have what I want most. You can sleep with Jacob tonight in exchange for some of the mandrakes. Long story short, it seems as if Rachel has the authority to direct who Jacob sleeps with and who he doesn't. Long story short, Leah and Jacob end up having a few more children. Issachar, again, y'all, these names, I wish we all knew Hebrew in here. Issachar, which in Hebrew means reward. She says, God has rewarded me. Zebulun, which in Hebrew means honored. Notice the past tense of the word honored. This isn't something that she's expecting from Jacob it's something that she is, um, ex- she's not expecting from Jacob anymore because of childbearing. It's something that is already true about how he was treating her. He may not love her in the same way, but she's feeling this sense of honor from him from being the mother of her, uh, his children. And, and, and so, like, I, he may lo- never love Leah in the same way that he loves Rachel. I believe that the story tells us that, that that's true. Later on, when Rachel dies, and she does die during childbirth, um, what happens is that you see, like, even later in, in Jacob's old years, after he's named Israel, like, he's weeping over his lost love. Leah gets to a place where she is able to see that Jacob is honoring her. Rachel has another son, which means uh, his name is Joseph. We all know Joseph. We're going to get to him in, in, you know, several weeks. Um, down the road if we were to keep reading through Genesis. But you know Joseph, his name literally means he adds. And then way over in chapter 35, 
we see this really, 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 really disturbing picture of Rachel's death. Ironically, what does she say when she can't have children? What does she say? Give me kids or I'll die. In verse 35, she dies. In chapter 35, she dies during labor. Like, in her dying words. Now listen to this, y'all. This is heartbreaking. Her dying words are to name her son Benoni. You don't know what that means. I didn't know what that means. But what it means in Hebrew is son of my sorrow. How about that for a name? How about that for a legacy, right? It's, the name is so bad. It is the only name that Jacob, the father of the kids, after, after Rachel passes away, it's the only name that Jacob looks down at his boy and he says, no, no, we got to change that. And he names him Benjamin, which literally means son of my right hand. Now these are the these names of these sons are the 12 tribes we talked about last week that were promised to Abraham and Sarah and who were fulfilled through Jacob and Rachel and especially the overlooked unseen unheard unconnected Leah listen to this verse again what the, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved he opened her womb and boy did he right and boy did he Do you ever feel unloved? Do you ever feel overlooked? Do you ever feel unseen? Do you ever feel unconnected and unheard? The good news is this. God gives love to the overlooked. God gives love to the overlooked. You may say, yeah, I know that's what it says in the Bible, Shane, but real time, I'm just dealing with some real woundedness and some real hurt, and it's just difficult not to be bitter or ambivalent or numb or sad or hurt or angry. I just don't feel loved. I don't feel like God cares. I don't feel like he sees me at all. Um, this, like, this is what I want to say to you. This is a difficult place. And there are no easy answers that take away woundedness. None of them. Talked about this last week, but if you, if you dare to hope for healing, you can be healed. You can be healed. You see, the hope of the world The hope of the world comes from a woman who was destitute and feeling the weight of being oppressed and abused and marginalized. The hope of the world comes from a woman who, yes, made some missteps. From a woman, and God was faithful to open her womb so that the lion of the tribe of Judah could come forth in glory, especially to those who were overlooked. And to give them this off the charts, extraordinary, sacrificial love right where you are. Right where you are. See, see, here's the thing I know about Jesus from the Gospels. Uh, and that's who we're talking about, by the way. That's the line of the tribe of Judah. Jesus majors on making the unseen seen family. And he does this as he himself is overlooked and unseen by every earthly power. Think about the life of Jesus. He lives 30 plus years of his life um, in, in, in relative obscurity. And he's, he's born in, I mean, you know the birth story. We're going to talk about it through Advent where it's just, it's just, I mean, normal at best. If we were, the, we look at it and we go, wow, people aren't born in mangers and in barns anymore. Here's the thing. That, they didn't think about it that way. They didn't think about it that way at all. Like, okay, this is, this is just what we do. 
He's from a city, a town, not even a city, a village, where basically it's synonymous with nothing good coming out, ordinary. He's basically unseen by everyone, written off by everyone, dismissed by everyone. Even his closest friends, the disciples, have moments where they just don't know what to do with some of the stuff that they hear Jesus saying. Yet in the Gospels, we see this picture of Jesus, the perfect human, who knows and lives in a way that shows that he knows that he's seen by the Father. Right? We hear the Father's proclamation over him in his baptism. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Prior to doing any ministry stuff, prior to casting out the first demon, prior to teaching the first sentence, prior to calling the first disciple, prior to healing the first lame or blind man or breaking a, a piece of bread that multiplies into enough for thousands of people, prior to doing any of this, he knows that nothing, not a single thing that he does adds to the identity that God has already spoken over him. This is my son. Jesus was able to connect deeply to others, knowing that in this broken world, y'all need to hear this, because we get it so wrong, um, especially in the church. We think that all this is supposed to be shiny people holding, friend, holding hands. And I'll tell you this, if I can't live in a house with the woman I love more than anybody else on the planet, I'm sure going to have some conflict with you. Right? Like, we got to be honest about that. Any relationship worth having is painful. It just is. But it's worth it. And here's why. Because we were created to be seen. We were created to be heard. And we were created to be connected to God and to one another. And so, like, like what if we could be free from feeling like we have to be constantly performing in order to be seen or heard or or for others to connect to us. I would submit to you this morning that in Christ we can. In Christ we can. In Christ we are promised that the work is finished. Now like, 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 like we see, like in the life of Leah, we can enter into the pain of being overlooked. We, we, we can be open to, to see the places that, that, that we are working in order just to be seen or heard or connected. We can identify those places in Christ. We can receive healing from, from our wounds. Sometimes, y'all, this happens immediately. And we certainly pray that the Lord would do it immediately in, 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 in our woundedness. But, but more times than not, the Spirit does this over time and among a community of other believers. Guess what? That's good too. Here's where I know that I and we have often made missteps toward healing or shepherding others uh, into being seen or heard or connected to. We oftentimes, I'll just say me, I've oftentimes been known to say something really, really pastoral like this. Well, you're probably just making an idol out of that person or thing or situation. You just need to believe the gospel and everything will be better. Now, here's the thing. The sentence is technically true. But as a lead-in, it's probably just not helpful. And here's why. Because it completely disconnects what we know to be true about the image of God imprinted on human beings in creation. 
You see, in creation, we were made to crave, y'all. We were made to crave. We were made, we, we were made with this deep capacity to need. We were made to crave relationship with our creator God. We were made to crave relationships with one another. We were made to crave food and to crave drink. All of these relationships were in perfect order when God created us to need them and he created us to need and, and to love and to receive all these things the way that he intended. Um, it, it's, it's the kind of love in the garden, what we see in creation, what we see is, this, is this, this kind of love where you're able to walk around with an apple in your hand, knowing that God is walking with you in the cool of day, and you're with um, the person who's created uh, a little different than you, but just like you, and you're eating an apple, and you're naked. Like, I can't even conceive of that. But that's the kind of creation uh, that, that we were, that's the kind of connection that we were created for. And so whenever we, when, when someone is saying, this is what's going on, um, we don't start in rebellion. We start in creation, right? That's good biblical theology. Not, no, you're an idolater. No, you were created to need. That's not sinful. It can be. We start with this idea that God created us to need. Now, this is part two. We know that in rebellion, our desires and our longings and our needs have gone haywire. Sometimes we, we misjudge. We think we need things we don't really need. We, we fill our need, a good thing, with things that we believe will make us whole, right? That, you know, that's the only reason most of us sin is because we think that thing that we're running after is going to give us ultimate hope. I'd say that's all the, all the, the only reason we do Typically, we, I mean, Romans says this, we run to people and to stuff to do this. We feel overlooked. It may be because we've made an ultimate thing out of a creative thing. But rather than run to, hey, guess what? You're an idol worshiper, first and foremost. Why not begin where the story begins? Hey, you were created with this deep need to, to be seen and heard and connected. And, and the order of this thing, the order of this works best in this way. In the... In the story of Leah, verse 31 does not say, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he rebuked her for making her husband an idol and trying to win Jacob's affection by churning out babies. That's not what the text says. The text says, when the Lord saw Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. He gave her a gift. And, and child and children for sure, but the ability to see that ultimately she was seen she was seen and her woundedness had the capacity to receive healing and even praise the Lord like, a, like probably actually more certainly like all of this, like she was walking through pain and heartache and tears. But praise comes when the promise of joy along the way and ultimate joy when Jesus comes back. So this morning when you look at this text, you think about maybe what you've, Listen to what the Lord's saying. Where are you feeling overlooked? Where do you need to be seen? Where do you need to experience the rich, the rich grace of Jesus' amazing love? Where is it that you're trying to earn more love instead of receive it freely from him? I'm going to read these again, then I've got one more question and then a comment. Where are you feeling overlooked today?
Where is it that you feel like you need to be seen, heard, connected with? Where do you need to experience the rich grace of Jesus' amazing love? And where do you feel like you're trying to earn love instead of receive it freely? There's this, uh, I was going to preach on this the week that I was gone for the funeral in Luke 7. There's, there's this amazing passage there that talks about this, this, this woman of the evening, right? Who is a prostitute, who, who basically uh, breaks up this dinner party of the Pharisees. And I love the fact that Jesus is always calling people to see overlooked people. And that's what happens when this woman busts onto the scene like everybody's just like. I mean, y'all know the story. She, everybody's just like, whoa, what is happening here? And she's doing these things with her hair and crying all over Jesus' feet and putting oil on there. And it's just, I mean, I'm, I would imagine if you are in the room, it is uncomfortable. And Jesus lets her do it. And then here, here's what's even crazier. He looks at Simon and he says, the Simon the Pharisee, and he says, Simon, y'all know what comes next? Do you see this woman? Because the point is he didn't. He saw, he saw what the woman did. Jesus saw who she was. And he says, this is, what, this is what a person looks like. This is what a person looks like that is seen by God. This is what a person looks like. And so how will we, like, and I'll say like all those questions and this picture, y'all, that's what church is. That is what church is. That's us coming and saying, hey, I feel overlooked in this area. And us being there for one another. And then it's going, how will we then, as people who have been overlooked, who feel overlooked, but who most certainly have not been overlooked because we in Christ have been able to say that we are not called orphans and strangers anymore. We are called the beloved of God. Like, that's what we're called. You're not. Like, like ladies, y'all look up here. Your primary identity is not mama. As great as that identity is. Your primary identity is not wife. Your primary identity, if you are in Christ, is daughter of the king. King is your dad. That's good news. And so how will we, family, how will we slow down to see and to hear and connect to the overlooked this week? Because that's what overlooked people who have been looked at and who've been seen and connected, they do, right? Right? 